I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And women, too, of course, but that was from a long time ago. Having a daughter who is about to turn 18 years old, I've had the dubious pleasure of a lot of exposure to the 21st century culture of young people. And driving her to school years back, I took note of this popular song by Wiz Khalifa and Snoop Dogg. Listen to the lyrics, if you would, please. So what you We're just having fun. We don't care who sees. Oh, shit. So what we go out. Whoa. Young and wild and free, quite a fantasy. Of course, such sentiment as expressed in the tune could apply to any generation. Meeting and tackling responsibilities and challenges are not usually high on the list for teenagers in America in any period of time. Well, here we are in the late 20-teens, and reality has a unique way of intruding into this blissful world without adult responsibilities. Part of the... uh, Unfortunate realities are such things as uh, brutal bullying, which uh, still goes on. The most glaring example of the tragedy shaking up this world of blissful ignorance is, of course, the massacre of 17 kids and adults at Parkland High School in Florida. America is rightfully proud of those kids who have so powerfully picked up the mantle of change. When I was a teen, we had the Vietnam War intruding rather forcefully on my generation, uh, and uh, many of us did what we could to bring our brothers home. Then the war and draft ended, and young white people began to drift back into political and social inaction, retreating into a world of comfort and safety, paying no never mind to the world of troubles beyond our homes. In the early 90s, when he was just 18, our guest today, Eric David Dawson, co-founded the nonprofit Peace First, based on the idea that young people can change the world for the better. Not someday, but right now. 25 years later, Peace First has reached millions worldwide, reaching and inspiring and teaching young people how to become peacemakers and create real change. And on today's Keeping Democracy Alive, we're going to take a look at uh, Dawson's new book called Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World. Eric David Dawson is the co-founder and CEO 
of Peace First. Well, thank you for being with us, Eric. Tell us about the genesis of this book. How did it come about, and what is the target audience? Thank you so much for uh, having me. You know, I'll be honest, I had uh, no interest in writing a book. And when you've been working uh, in an organization and in a movement as long as I have, uh, 26 years at this point, eventually people ask you to record your wisdom and tell the story of your journey. And I realized I would have no interest in reading that book, let alone writing that book. Um, but I, I did give some thought to, to myself as a 14-year-old. You know, I, I was an angry kid growing up in the Midwest and um, really frustrated by, by both the, the lack of action by, by perceived adult leaders and also the amount I was dismissed as a potential solution and so began organizing in my high school. And so I wrote Putting Peace First really for my 14-year-old self. Um, yeah. And for 10, 12, 18, 22-year-olds and their adult allies all over the world who, in that moment of obligation, uh, anger, frustration, excitement, um, are looking for a tangible set of ideas on on how to take action. And and so this book is part a love letter uh, to young people and, and their power. It's part manifesto. Uh, on what it what it takes and, and what what we should believe in, uh, inspirational stories of other young peacemakers, and then a step by step how to guide and how to build and create your own peacemaking project. Wow, interesting! Connecting with young people these days, a lot you know, parents we try to do it and usually are befuddled and have no idea. But it sounds like you coming from that uh, that place that you did come from. Uh, to have this uh, ability to connect, and so that's the uh, the target audience. Well, I want to ask about the book, but but first, peace first. How did that come about? Talk about that. What that organization is about, and what how it works. Absolutely. So I, I along with a, a group of other young people, um, started peace first uh, out of our, our dorm rooms uh, at Harvard. Um, so, so the, the, the joke amongst my friends is I'm, I'm like a very, very poor version of Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and, and we really started the organization built around a couple of big ideas, uh, one being that young people sit at the bottom of the privileged pyramid, right? No matter how you slice it, if you look at uh, economic justice, environmental, climate change, education equity, Young people bear the brunt of the decisions that adults make on their behalf and are rarely, if ever, invited to be part of the solution, at least in any meaningful way. Um, And then when you add to that, what we do invite young people to engage in uh, is often pretty dismissive and transactional. You know, it's adult-created, adult-run, based on adult needs, and largely focused on outputs, right? How many cookies do you bake? How many hours do you volunteer? How much money do you raise? But rarely do we let young people be in the driver's seat. And then rarely do we have them really focus on what it takes to do justice work, which is as much about the internal work as it is about the external. Uh, It's about compassion. It's about crossing lines of difference. It's about courage, taking a risk, putting yourself out there, Mm -hmm. uh, make yourself uncomfortable. And it's about collaborative leadership rather than just individual efforts. Um, and then, of course, um, the social change world, the social entrepreneur space, 
is reproducing the same inequality that exists everywhere else. And so if you don't have mm. family resources or school resources or social capital, it's really hard to get a project started. You know, I may have begun as an 18-year-old, but I was an 18-year-old Harvard student. So when I sent letters out to the Boston Public Schools saying, let me come and teach peacemaking and social change skills to your students, it was on Harvard stationery, uh-huh. not as a student from Columbus State Community College, where a lot of my friends went, or, or just a kid from my neighborhood. So we want to be able to, to reproduce and wanted to reproduce that uh, platform that gives young people not just the resources, the money, the design tools, uh, but also the network uh, and the legitimacy to go out and create change. Wow, really interesting. You, uh, that's fascinating stuff and a lot to talk about there. And I, you know, when I think about teenagers, they, things are done to them, for them. And I think there's a real desire amongst them to not have it all done to them, not just be at effect, but to be at cause. And they rarely, rarely get a chance to do that because if they could do that, which it sounds like you're tapping into and encouraging, an awful lot of good things can come out of that. Obviously, the most recent is the uh, the Parkland kids who are touring the country and doing amazing things. Very, very inspiring. I do find it fascinating, as you mentioned a little bit, that the title of your prologue is Confessions of an Angry Kid. I, I suspect a high percentage of high school kids are angry a lot, often. And you say, I wrote this book for anyone who, like I did, is growing up angry. Please please say more about this. Do, do you understand the anger now? And I, I think it's, it is pretty pervasive. Uh, and, and, and as you and your listeners know, it, it, it's not just young people. Like, there's just something about our, our country right now that yeah, feels true. angry and, and unsettled, and, and rightly so. And you know, the reason I wanted to start my, my book that way was really twofold. Uh, one is I want to reclaim our, our use of the word anger uh, as not necessarily a negative thing. Um, there's a lot to be angry about at the world. You know, I think about anger as our as our reaction to the brokenness that's around us. What we do with that anger matters. So there's a big difference between anger and aggression, uh, which is which is acting out to hurt someone else, or anger and violence. And so I really want to encourage young people to to claim that 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 sense of frustration, that sense of anger that they're feeling as a as a good and, and positive thing that they can channel. Hmm. Um, the second is that I wanted to name and claim those young people um, that, that rarely get named and cl- named and claimed. Hmm. You know, so so we, we we love young people involved in our communities as long as it's in uh, ways that are comfortable and safe for us. Right? So we're we're happy to have young people um, volunteer to feed and clothe people who need right. food and clothing, but are less comfortable when they're asking why people in our community yeah. don't have food or clothes, or more directly, attending a town hall meeting or a city council meeting and calling out the hypocrisy of the city budget and where resources are going. Um, and so I wanted to be able to invite those young people in who whose stories are not always neat and pretty, um, whose narratives aren't always easy, um, and let them know that they're welcome in this space, too. Wow, what a great idea. It seems fairly obvious now that you said it, but I, you know, just it's something we, we need to get to. And you're right about the, the anger out there and, 
you know, it seems like all of America is in an argument, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's part of democracy. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Eric David Dawson, whose new book is Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World. And it's it's for young people, for teenagers. The introduction, I talked about the prologue. The introduction is titled, You've Been Lied To. I imagine this sentiment might grab a lot of kids' attention. Talk about that, if you would, please. You know, it's 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 funny. I um I was a, a graduation speaker at a, one of our partner schools in Los Angeles. It was a fifth grade graduation, and I I, I said to to these students who were gathered that that we've been lying to you since kindergarten when we come in there and mm-hmm. and, and tell you that you're the future. Uh, your teachers have been lying to your parents, and so uh, the whole crowd, like, the principal gave me this really dirty look. All the teachers were confused, <laughs> but the kids were nodding. Um, because what I was explaining to them, and, and, and what, I'll, what I'll share with you and your listeners is, um, you know, our, our narratives around uh, young people, um, you know, is, is that they are our victims that we need to protect. Um, so we put a lot of resources into keeping kids safe. We, we invite young people onto television programs to tell their horrific stories or their stories of redemption. We have that very clear narrative about young people as victims who need our protection um, or they're perpetrators. So we incarcerate young people, we mm. medicate young people, we mm. turn our schools into prisons, mm-hmm. uh, literally. Uh, my daughter walks through a metal detector every day to get into her school. Um, or or uh, spiritually, right? We want kids to sit in their seats to not talk. Um, right, not be creative. <laughs> or they're the future, right? And, and so, you know, we, we go in and we tell young people they're going to be great artists, writers, leaders, activists someday, someday, that there's some mythical point where they've learned enough and developed enough that they can then be effective. And, you know, the intention is lovely, right? It's, it's speaking to the possibility that young people have, but it's um, incredibly disempowering. Right. Um, and so the, the, the message I want to offer in this book is, no, um, you actually don't have to wait. And in fact, young people um, are some of our most effective problem solvers. They are closest to the problem, so they have that proximity and that wisdom. And they're not embedded in the same systems of learning and understanding that we develop as we get older. And so their ability to innovate and create and to cross lines of difference and and to see the world as its possibilities rather than its limitations um, are particularly strong with young people. As, As I joke, you know, ignorance is this wonderful enabler of the possible. (laughs) <laughs> it's true. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I can think of many examples for myself. I am not a kid anymore, very long distance from that. But not knowing is really fun. And just, you know, embracing the not knowing and then just jumping into what I, I don't know and learning about it. It's fantastic stuff. And that's available to anybody. And that's right. As a parent and from my own not altogether pleasant memories. I can attest to the fact that the high school years can be exceptionally difficult and painful, even for allegedly normal kids. As we know, you trace your commitment to working with youth starting Peace First uh, 25 years ago, even creation of this book, back to your high, your high school's dysfunctional culture around disabled students. What's the connection? Yeah, well, first of all, parenting is a racket. I've got kids and... <laughs> 
the whole system is set up so that if we do our jobs well, our young people's or our children's job is, is to reject and move away from us. Um, and I think what we don't always appreciate as, as parents or adults is that that process of identity creation is actually really important and beautiful um, and needs its own love and support around it. Um, and our, our language around teenagers is so fascinating. Um, and, you know, Bert, not to call you out on your own show, but, you know, even starting with the language, as you talked about your daughter as a, as a teenager, this dubious pleasure. Um, you know, I was at a, a conference uh, of, of violence prevention practitioners, and they had an advertisement for, a, for a, a parenting video that was called Help, I Have a Teenager. Uh-huh. Right, we, we've got this language about about young people in this country that is predominantly negative. Hmm. Um, Gallup did the survey of adults' images of, of young people and found that 71% of Americans have a negative image of young people. They're hmm. lazy, they're dangerous, and apathetic. And so, you know, it was into this culture that I was growing up where um, my sense of myself felt so different from the messages that I was getting about who I was. Um, and so I, I came of age at the, the sort of midpoint of, of what's referred to as the inclusion movement uh, mm. here in the U.S. when students with disabilities who had been kept in substantially separate education settings were being mainstreamed, uh, were, were being brought into the general education population to mm-hmm. join health class and gym and, and recess and this idea that the best education settings for all young people were those that were least restrictive and most inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there was little to no preparation for any of the students to, to create this environment. And so what happened is what often happens when, when groups get together is the, these students who were different were humiliated, made fun of, mm-hmm. discriminated against, beat up. And it connected to my own sense of justice. And so as a 14-year-old, again, working with, with other students, began organizing in my high school to change the culture of my school. So rather than the principal saying, you know, where is there a tolerance school? We don't do this. It was student to student saying that this is not who we are. Mm. And it was powerfully effective. Um, and then, of course, it didn't feel like enough, so it began creating a district-wide training program mm-hmm. for every fourth, fifth, and sixth grader on how young people can welcome kids who are different into their classrooms. Um, And so for me, it was this um, incredible opportunity to get to explore um, all sorts of critical social justice skills, Um, both the the theoretical, like like what does it mean to be a good person and, and what does it mean to run an inclusive student group, which hadn't really been done before, and then what does it mean to run a meeting? What does it mean to create a logic model? What does it mean to evaluate a program? What does it mean as a 15-year-old who looked like I was 10 because uh, I was so little to go to a principal of a different school and say, let me come and teach your students? Like, what do I need to prepare for that? So it's both this incredible developmental opportunity, this incredible um, opportunity to change the world. And for me, it was an opportunity to feel powerful. Wow. That, uh, I, you know, so many kids want to feel that. And then, and one thing, uh, I, the music that my daughter listens to, yeah, I'm not so crazy about, but I, I'm always inspired by her, her creativity, her curiosity, uh, her energy. It, it's really a great thing. And to encourage that uh, is just a great thing. And, and to bottle that up, as has been done for so many 
it feels like centuries. I don't know. It's it's it doesn't feel right. The the possibilities, as you say, are fantastic. And and you as a fifteen year old taking the lead on that. Actually, you reminded me I went to my first anti war demonstration at age fourteen back in nineteen sixty five and it mattered. And uh, you know, I didn't feel helpless and helping kids to understand what they can do. I got a question for you that, that just popped up actually, because I know the whole male-female thing uh, with these days with kids, boys, have, being so exposed through the, uh, the internet to pornography and not understanding how to relate to girls and, and, and how to do it respectfully. And I think respect is, is key to this thing, respecting the kids, parents and adults respecting the kids, the kids respecting each other. you have any thoughts about how to address that? That seems very mysterious and, and frankly frightening to me because I, I just I don't know if boys are getting it. You know, I think in general we've gotten much, much better at how we raise our uh, girls um, and are still very conflicted about how we raise our boys. Yes. My, my son in, in, in kindergarten uh, skinned his knee and, and, and had one of his teachers tell him to stop crying because he had to be a man. No, no. And, and so, oh like, like this stuff is oh, deep and it's embedded, um, and it's, it's connected to fear and loss. Um, that, that, that are connected to so many things I think we're experiencing that this set of, uh, of dis- disruption. Um, what I will say is I, I think in general adults are really confused about how we are raising young people in this country. And this is a broad generalization and there are sure. geographic issues and class issues and identity issues that, that of course are much more nuanced. But, but I think we both want our young people to grow up much more quickly, so we're exposing them to a lot of information and images that I certainly didn't have easy access to growing up. Right. Um, and then we're also managing much more of their time. You know, so in a sense, we're keeping them younger, um, longer. Hmm. Um, and, and young people, I think, are really picking up on that confusion of both, like, hurry up and be an adult and uh, let me cut your meat for you. <laughs> Um, and, and what I find so interesting about the ways in which young people are engaging with both this confusion and questions around gender norms um, and even uh, relationships um, is doing what they always do, is, is building new models. Right. Um, so questions of identity for this generation are much more fluid than it was for me growing up. Uh, so gender expression is different. Gender identity is much less binary. Yes. Uh, sexuality is much more uh, fluid and, and comfortable being talked about. Um, you know, my, 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 my um, son goes to, to a large um, uh, public school here in Boston, and um, his teacher has the kids lined up by boys and girls. Um, and, um, you know, he raised his hand and said, what about kids who don't identify as any gender? Uh-huh. Um, and the fact that, first of all, he would think about that. That's impressive. But that his very diverse, multicultural classmates would say, oh, that's right. Um, uh-huh. And then to give his teacher credit, she listened to him and now has them line up by odds and evens. Um, so, so just offering that, that all the stuff that creates anxiety, the hypersexualization, um, the confusion and rigidity around, around gender roles, um, young people are tackling that in incredibly creative, 
thoughtful ways um, that we then need, need to learn from and support. Wow. I, I like this uh, optimism and a, and a good different optic to look at uh, so many of these situations. Now, as you say, it's common for adults to tell kids they'll have an opportunity to change the world at some future time. You believe such promises deferred are wrong as well as damaging. Why? Well, it's inaccurate. Um, we, we spent a year studying movements over the past 120 years from the workers' rights movement to the anti-war movement to marriage equality, Occupy the Arab Spring, really because we wanted to understand what were movements that created new cultural norms, that, that shifted the way that we see ourselves in relationship to one another and relationship to the world. It's a fascinating piece of research. Um, and the one through line that we found in every single example, every single case study, is that every single movement uh, that has created uh, a new cultural norm was often led by, but always powered by young people, right? Young people are our most powerful creators of culture, music, fashion, values. You know, young people are building the world the rest of us will, will live into, mm. right? The anti-war movement was young people. Yes. The civil rights movement was young people. Yes. Dr. King uh, was an incredibly young leader, yes. uh, both when he started out and when he was doing his writing. And I think we we lose sight of that. Um, and that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, work and, and roles for elders, because uh, there certainly are. Um, but it's a reminder that the, the power that young people, to ha- young people have to shape uh, culture is not new. Uh, that is so true. It, uh, Twas ever thus. It's always been that young people uh, taking the lead, no question. Uh, for, for, from a young age, you say many of us are taught not to act. Why is this? What's, what's the reason for that? Just because we adults can't handle it, can't control it, can't keep it in a box? Why, why do we teach kids not to act? I think that's a piece of it. Um, I'll also offer a, a more generous um, observation, uh, particularly for, for parents and grandparents and teachers and aunts and uncles who are listening. Um, I think so much of, of that messaging is grounded in, in fear, uh, and not fear of young people, but fear uh, for young people. Um, we don't like to see our kids get hurt. Um, we don't like to see them made fun of. Um, that is very vivid memories of, of my kids learning to walk, and, and I imagine you do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a crap show. Like, you know, they take a couple steps and they fall and they hit yeah. something, then they get up and they do it again. Um, and if in that moment, you know, when they first fell down, they were trying to walk, we said, okay, let's just stop. I'm going to carry you till you're 30. <laughs> they would never have that experience of learning to walk, learning to move, understanding and trusting their bodies. Oh, no. um, and, and we lose our faith in young people's ability to fail. Um, now, granted, not all young people have the same safety net when they fall down. Um, and issues of class and race often impact what failure means and how that gets experienced. But in general, in general, we need to trust young people to make mistakes. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to teachers uh, who want to buy the books for their students um, and support them doing social justice projects. And there's so much anxiety about their students failing. Like, like, what if their projects yeah. don't work, or what if they get frustrated? Um, and my answer to them is, yeah, like, 
those things are going to happen, and they need to happen because that's that's how we learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't like my first semester teaching Peace First in Boston Public Schools was a stellar performance. I was a horrible teacher. I didn't know what I was doing, and I had to learn a lot through those experiences. And luckily, I had mentors and, and the young people themselves who provided a lot of grace in that process. But the bottom line is that um, what we need to do is, is allow young people to take those risks. We need to help them to be smart about it, and we need to love them when they fall down, just as we do when they're learning to walk. Fascinating. I was talking to my niece's husband the other day who teaches third grade, and he was saying he can really see a difference that it's, frankly, worse where he teaches in a public school in Massachusetts, actually, that kids, that their parents do so much more for them and don't let the kids make mistake and learn from it. That's not a good thing. No question about it. And, you know, humans can do some really awful things. We all know that. But it does seem to be part of our universal nature, to help others when the need arises. The inclination to be of help is, of course, a central ingredient of peacemaking. But you contend that such a desire has an insidious side as well. Say more about that, please. That's right. You know, I I do think in, in, in biological studies and neurological studies back this up, that we are hardwired for cooperation and empathy. You know, as we move from being hunter-gatherers to farmers and building communities, that was an essential part of what helped us live together, and and it still is. Um, You know, as I like to say, I think fundamentally we are wired for goodness. Um, One of the things I write about is the importance of taking a stand um, and standing up for someone else, standing up for an idea. Um, And as as I build this idea out with young people, um, one of the pieces that I build into this is that sometimes taking a stand um, is about creating space for others. You know, I think about you know, one of the golden rules of, of, of labor organizing is, is to never, ever do for others what they can do for themselves. Um, and so what I want to help young people to explore, and I offer this to your listeners as well, um, is to really think about what they're called to do in a moment. Um, and, and that taking a stand, taking that risk is sometimes being the one who steps into a moment and says it's not okay that you're talking to this other person that way, um, or is the first person to raise their hand uh, when something is needed to be done. And sometimes it is it is ceding the microphone to someone else. It's creating spaces for other people to be brave. Absolutely. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive with your great help. Our guest today is Eric David Dawson, who's got a new book called Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World, and it's about young people. It's really targeted young people. It's very interesting. Each of the seven chapters is a numbered commitment, and each chapter profiles a young person activating this commitment. In the first chapter, you talk about, and I hope I pronounce this right, Kate, Kateba, Kataba? Uh, it's about the uh, Katiba. Katiba, okay. It's about the usual way people deal with societal challenges. They donate money. Of course, we feel better after that. Whew, no more guilt. Kataba is uh, recognized the limitations of donations. How did her community building efforts change the school culture where mere money had failed? 
know, I've had the, the privilege of, of meeting and connecting and learning from and listening to young peacemakers, uh, certainly all over the country and, and now all over the world. Um, and, you know, if, if, I, if I could, I, I, I would have wanted to put, put every young person in this book because their stories need to be heard. Um, they need to be seen. Um, so it's very hard to choose seven oh, sure. uh, to, to highlight. Um, but but what I found remarkable about about Katiba's story, so she moved uh, from Yemen um, uh, for the reason a lot of people um, come to the United States for safety uh, and, and for a new beginning, um, and, and found herself in, in Oakland, California at a school that was experiencing a lot of community violence around her um, and around it. And so she would have these moments where a member of the school community uh, would be killed uh, through, through gun violence. They'd gather everyone in the auditorium. There would be an outpouring of emotion. And then students would go back to class. Um, and then it would happen again and again. Um, and she realized this is, this is ridiculous. Like, we have to do something. Um, and, and as so many of the young people uh, came to observe, she realized that, that I need to do something. Um, and so she organized this rolling fast where from Dr. King's birthday to Cesar Chavez's holiday, um, the students would collectively fast, meaning that a different student or teacher or community member would fast for 24 hours wearing a black armband to symbolize their fast. And then they would gather at noon. The person who'd been fasting would, would talk about the experience. They'd pass the armband on to someone else. Um, and they did this for three reasons. Uh, one is to honor uh, the victims of violence in their community. The second was to create a forum for collective action where folks could feel like they were um, sacrificing and connecting. Um, but the third was to rally their community to bear witness the effect of gun violence uh, in, in their neighborhood and, and to organize uh, a march at the end um, that was demanding peace uh, and doing that by, by, building, by building community. Um, and and what, I, what I love about, about Katiba's effort um, is that she both um, drew the circle bigger in terms of inviting people in mm. um, and then created these moments um, of, of, real, of, of real witness bearing and, and sacrificing. It, it's hard not to eat for 24 hours. Mm. Um, and, and, and that embodiment of what it means to give something up um, in order to build the beloved community, I think is such a powerful example of peacemaking. Wow, that is very interesting. And before I, I just wanted to go through the uh, the titles of the chapters, commitments. The first commitment one: putting put peace first every day. Two: raise my hand, open my heart, take a stand, bring others along, work with my enemies. Wow, keep trying. That's got to really those chapters commitments. I would think if kids see that knowing kids as well or as little as I do, I would think they would uh, connect with that. And just fascinating stuff. And it must have been hard to pick out the stories because uh, there's so many. And certainly, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of attention, rightly so, on police abuse and shootings of young males of color. Our attention has been riveted by that. We hear a lot less of hopeful efforts to reimagine the relationship between peace 
and those in the communities they serve, and sometimes oppress. Tell us about Babatunde's work to engage with Baltimore police. Yeah, and one of the things I'll add about the commitments is these were co-created with a group of young people who really helped me think about the language um, and the differentiation between different ones of them. Um, and, you know, Baba Tundes has been uh, a young person who I've been connected with and worked with for quite some time. And you know, what I find so remarkable about, about his story, and, and his sits in this chapter of, of working with your enemies. Mm. Um, and I got some really interesting pushback around that language. Like, enemies, is that the right word? Originally, it was, was work with unlikely allies. Um, but, but I went with enemies because I really wanted to force the self-reflection of, mm. like, who do I think of as my enemy? Who, who am I labeling with that, with that language? Um, and so, you know, Baba Tunde was a 17-year-old walking home from class, uh, actually driving, um, stopped uh, un- under the suspicion of, of using drugs, handcuffed, thrown to the ground, and, and threatened, and then released. Uh, it was the first time he had experienced something like that, but he knew many other people in his community who had experienced that. Yeah. And he decided to make a movie about it, where mm. he interviewed young people of color about their experiences with the police. But he didn't stop there. He then went and interviewed police officers and asked them about their experience. Mm. Um, What does it feel like to walk up to a group of teenagers you don't know? What goes through your mind? What do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? And one of his insights was that police officers and young people are terrified of each other because they they don't know each other. And so he created a training program that brought young people in the police precincts to do basically role plays where police officers and young people played each other in some of those fraught scenarios to to have that embodiment of someone else's experience. He went on and trained two-thirds of the Baltimore police force on how to work with young people. Um, And and what I find so uh, moving about his story is um, to uh, grow up and be part of the community he grew up and was a part of to go and work with the, the police was a radical step for which he got a lot of blowback. Um, and similarly for the police, you know, many of whom didn't want to listen to him because he was young, because he was a young person of color, and also just because they were tired at the end of the day and didn't want to sit through a workshop they were told they had to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and still he went. He went and did this again and again and again. And what's interesting, I invited each young person to read the, the, the chapter and, and the way that I told their story um, and offer me feedback. Um, and Babatunde was really clear that the original way I'd written this um, made it sound both too easy and painted the picture that he grew to, to um, love policing. Um, you know, it almost had the narrative of someone who had this horrible experience, got to know police officers, and now wants to become a police officer himself. Um, and, and what he shared with me is he still thinks of the police as an occupying force sure. in his community. But what he understands now is that it's the structure of policing that pits um, armed individuals against the community, not individual officers. Right. Um, that you could be the sweetest, kindest human being. Um, and the system is set up 
to be destructive to everybody. And it's that system that he wanted to change. And, and that was the awareness that he came to. And that, to me, is what it means to be a peacemaker, is to have that sense of compassion and that sense of anger, um, to have that sense of hope and also have that realist eye about the ways that structures are set up to divide and conquer. Wow. That, I, yeah, I can, I can see that so much because, you know, if somebody is an officer, you can't talk to him or her as just another person. And wouldn't it be nice if you could? But there is that structure, as you say, and trying to break through that fascinating learning opportunity there. Uh, and, of course, it's been profoundly disturbing that parents, as you say, now have to consider mass shootings when they send their loved ones to school going through a metal detector. Having experienced the life-changing consequences of gun violence in her community, Mary Pat, another chapter, designed a shock ad billboard, billboard campaign that ended up measurably decreasing violent crime. But before that could happen, she was told no and turned back countless times. With the limited resources of young people, how did she persist and see her plan into reality? That's an interesting story. I, I really uh, enjoyed... Uh interviewing Mary Pat uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is that um, she's just this incredible force of nature. Uh, she just ran for um, public office in Georgia. Uh, I think the youngest person in, in history to do that. Um, had her challenger uh, fight her in court that she had the right to run, uh, which, which she prevailed in. Um, but also because she's this incredible commitment to compassion. Um, you know, so in her design work, she's trying to figure out how to bring rural and urban and suburban young people together um, across lines of difference. We were meeting with a high-ranking member of the Obama administration a couple years ago who, in a very loving way, turned to her and said, after hearing her story, it sounds like, sounds like gun violence has really affected your community. I'm sorry. And she said, I appreciate that, but, but you're wrong. It, it affects all of our communities. Um, these are all of our children. Um, so Mary Pat at 15 had been to more funerals and graduations and wanted to use mm. the same tools that we use to get people not to smoke or take drugs, to not pick up a gun and shoot someone. And so she designed these shock ads that featured diverse groups of people, um, diverse experiences, so wanting to not have people think that gun violence just affects one group or one neighborhood, but it's something that affects us all. Um, and again and again was told no uh, when she was designing it, uh, when she wanted to launch billboards. She even had a civil rights activist uh, icon try to take the idea and pass it off as her own. Yeah. Um, and we, we actually... It, Gave, gave her a significant amount of money to get off the ground and, um, you know, put up these billboards, uh, which even then uh, was told they were the wrong images, um, they were too violent, they were going to promote violence, and, of course, ended up having a real impact on the communities that she shared them with. Um, and then, you know, the summer was over, the money ran out, and she was back to square one. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to share her story is because some of the stories we hear about social justice leaders growing up um, are too perfect because uh, they're told looking back. 
right? It's like, it's like Dr. King always knew what to do, right. um, or Gandhi was clear about what the path was, um, when in fact so many leaders um, are lost and not quite sure what to do, and things are imperfect and things fail. And so I really wanted to be able to tell um, that part of the story as well. Fascinating. So useful. I, that's amazing to me. Now, having many friends who are teachers, I'm proud to say, uh, and they all should get paid more than they do. Being a parent myself, I can certainly attest to the awareness that many school administrators can unintentionally worsen problem situations. Way, if I hope I pronounced that right, was surprised to find that the very officials charged with protecting him became a significant part of the problem. How did he muster the courage to confront his school's administration? That's a big one. You, there, there's so much I love about about that story, um, and, and actually, you know, you know, there are a couple of stories about about young people taking on their administration. So, so both uh, Matthew, um, whose brother was being bullied and and wanted to um, hope that an adult would take care of it, uh, a parent, a teacher, and realize that it had to be him. Um, and so had to convince the school administration to let him as a, I don't know, must have been 14, 15, design a training to teach empathy uh, to his son's, his brother's uh, middle school classroom. Um, and, then, and then, of course, we, who um, brand new to this country from China as a 15-year-old, second week in school, got sucker punched in the back of the head, um, went bleeding to the school security office to get help and was shown a black and white set of photos to see who had assaulted him, and of course he had no idea, and so they said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. Uh, flash forward uh, a couple years later, and there's a day where 26 students, all Asian immigrants, get assaulted, uh, 17 of whom have to go to the hospital. Jeez. And his insight in that moment was that these kids who were being the crap out of him and his friends were just as much a victim as he was of a school culture that was condoning that kind of behavior that there was a cycle that he was uh, a mere actor in. And so we decided he, he wouldn't go to school um, with, with very little uh, support from his family, as, as you might imagine. Um, uh, many families, particularly new to this country, don't know, want their kids to rock the boat. Um, organized an eight-day boycott uh, where students gathered every morning and held a press conference and basically said, we're not going to participate in a system that doesn't see us as human. Mm. filed a Justice Department lawsuit, which he won based on his wow. uh, journal that he had kept, um, got a new principal, sensitivity training, and he's now training other youth organizers throughout Philadelphia. Um, and, and what I love, again, about Wee's story is this wasn't a single moment. This was years of trying some things out, failing, waiting for someone else, and then finally organizing other people to create a loud enough voice that they couldn't be ignored. These are amazing stories, each one. It must have been interesting doing this research, and, and I'm sure it all had quite an effect on you and hopefully uh, people who read this book, which is, by the way, called Putting Peace First. Eric David Dawson is the guest, the author. Now, in 2016, many young people were tremendously enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders. And for many reasons we won't go into now, he did not become 
Democratic nominee. Many raised in this era of quick fixes, instant gratification, and decreasing attention spans just gave up on politics. It didn't work right away. Now, you tell the young people that peacemaking is a marathon, not a sprint. How do we nurture persistence and patience? Uh, and in what ways is your book a manual that might successfully address some of these frustrating challenges? I find it terribly frustrating that so many young people say, well, I give up. Bernie Sanders didn't win. I'm out of it. I'm not participating in politics anymore. That's not how it works. How do you deal with that? Well, well first of all, we have to look at what we model. Um, so everything you describe for young people, I, I think, is unfortunately equally true for the adults in their lives. Um, the number of, of adults my age who don't vote is, is pretty atrocious. And so what we get are these cycles where um, young people don't vote, so elected officials don't speak to them, and so young people don't vote. Um, and there's lots of intriguing ideas on how to help shape that, uh, including lowering the voting age to 16 in some communities, yes, particularly yes. for local elections like school boards, um, where young people can practice the steps of democracy um, and get that level of experience. Um, you know, I've, I've um, been around long enough that the, uh, the, the, the death announcement for our, uh, our, our democracy and, and young people's engagement in it um, begins to feel like a, like a cycle. Um, and, and I think part of our challenge is not only how do we um, model persistence, um, but how do we recommit to the public good? Um, we're privatizing um, so much, whether that's education. There's a private highway now in California. No. I, I, I took my son to an, an amusement park that I'd grown up going to in Ohio. And, you know, they have these, I think they're called like fast lane passes where you can get it and, and skip to the head of the line. All of these things that allow people uh, to cheat legally, uh, to get out of systems, to get out of requirements, um, send this message that if you have enough money or the right connections, you actually don't have to play by the rules. And nah. I had this very long talk with my son because, you know, financially we could afford these fast lane passes, but it, it felt, I know it's silly to say it about an amusement park, but morally wrong. Yeah. Um, like part of what it means to go to amusement park is you wait in line with people. Part of what it means to be in a community is you vote, send your kids to public schools, even if they're not always great. Like part of what we have got to do is, is to tend to our democracy. Um, and the problem is for so much of that tending, there's a high set of personal costs with a very low set of individual rewards. And so what happens when, when we confront situations, and I think this is what we model for our young people, is what's in it for me? And if we move beyond that, we begin to ask, well, what am I willing to give? What can I can contribute? And most of us, that's where we stop. When, in fact, we have to ask a third question, which is, what am I willing to give up for the common good? Mm. Like, Am I willing to pay higher taxes? It's, the whole language around taxes really uh, bothers me because oh, it's it, oh, it's a sense that 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 um, there is no you know, taxes good. are these 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 punishments, these sort of bad <laughs> things the government forces on us, right. as opposed to we're inheritors. I mean, we are inheritors of an incredible, imperfect, granted um, community and country that people sacrifice to build. 
Um, and whether that's the schools or the roads or the museums or the public art, like all of those public spaces, someone gave something up to create that, to make that possible. Democratic norms, I mean, all these pieces that we are experiencing being blown up right now, those took decades to build. That social trust, that social mm-hmm. connection, were built by people giving things up, sacrificing. Um, and so I think the, the message young people get is the complete opposite of that. And then we act surprised mm-hmm. that they don't show up with that commitment. Yeah, if we don't model that, we have only ourselves to blame. Fascinating. Another, we could talk for a long time, a lot of stuff to talk about. We don't have a lot of minutes left. One worrying aspect that concerns me very much greatly is the cult of celebrity these days. Today's culture celebrates the charismatic leader, the great orator, the creative dynamo, the unique and truly remarkable hero. Well, that gives the impression to young people that, well, if you're not that... Forget about it. You can't make a difference. That's a real problem. How do you suggest we deal with that? It's a great question, and, and, and I actually think it's a fair critique of my book. You know, it, it's a one thing I really struggled to get right that I don't think I did. You know, the stories of the young people in here, you know, I hope feel very human and fully formed. They're also pretty incredible. Right? Most young people are not going to train yeah, two-thirds of their police force on how to work with people of color. Right? That's just not what they're called to do. It's not what their passion is. It's not where their skills lie. Um, and so my one worry about the book is that young people read that and say, that's amazing. I could never do that. And I'll share one, one of my favorite stories I came across in, in doing this research was a, a young woman in New York City. And what she would do is she would go into her cafeteria every day and she would scan that cafeteria and find that one student that no one is sitting with, and she would go and sit with that kid. Like, we can all do that. Like, whatever our version of the cafeteria is, we can all do something small to draw the circles better uh, and bigger. Um, and so I think a piece of what we need to do is we need to tell those stories, and we need to celebrate those stories. This book, and ultimately the work of, of Peace First and our, our online platform for young people, is not really for, and, and please excuse it, the military terms, but it's not for the generals. You know, this, this is for the lieutenants. This is for those young people who actually don't necessarily know what they want to do, um, but are curious about the world, um, who, who don't want to start a nonprofit at 14, but just want to figure out how to create meaning and connection in their lives. Those are the young people that, that I fundamentally wrote this book for, um, with that message, you know, I, I think about um, uh, Camus in, in his book, The Plague, uh, where he wrote this amazing and beautifully written um, parable you know, about the Holocaust, but focused on this town in North Africa that's experiencing the plague. Um, and he writes at the end about how these plagues always return. Each generation faces mm. its own pestilence. Mm. And, and how those of us who are um, unable to be saints, uh, but unwilling to give up, strive our utmost to be healers. And, and that's really m- my wish for, for all of us, all of your listeners, all the young people engaged with this book, is it's not about getting everything right. It's not about being perfect. But you also can't give up. You need to do something. 
and ultimately the work of, of, of peacemaking, I think the work of our democracy right now is about healing. Well, it is a tall order, but it is it is being done. And I, I like one of the uh, one of the most poignant commitments you ask young people to make to read something written by a person or group basically every day that sees the world differently from me and try to understand one thing that is important to them. That's a, a really important approach, I think, to see that fascinating book. Very, very important focus. Uh, I hope it's getting into schools. What's Are, are uh, school districts buying into it, or is it too threatening to the uh, powers that be? This is uh, definitely a school-friendly book. Um, it's got great nonfiction stories, which schools are trying to do more of. Um, it's it's uh, works for a broad age of, of, of readers. It's, it's highly accessible. Um, so that's part of my hope, that this becomes a standard part of what young people get to read and explore in schools. So move over, Mark Twain. I'm coming for your spot. <laughs> I'm all in favor of that. Fascinating stuff. I, I hope it does very well and it reaches a lot of kids. As one who believes in democracy and participating, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Thank you so much for being with us. Eric David Dawson, the book is called Putting Peace First, Seven Commitments to Change the World. Thank you so much and, and best of luck with this really impressive book. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. Thanks for having me. This is brand new from Sir Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, standing before you with something important to say. With some trepidation, I crave your attention, but I'm not going to let anything get in my way. The message is simple, it's straight from my heart, and I know that you've heard it before. But what does it 